tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene was wounded. But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. If you are listening to this the day it comes out, then you, like us, have hopefully survived what is called Super Tuesday. Uh, Super Tuesday is where all the nominees for president uh, get together and, and you know, pitch their cause to each state. We don't know how it'll work out, but, uh, you know, it, it's a good way into today's episode. Hi, I'm Ben. Hey, Ben, I'm Noel. Well, you notice how like super is kind of an interesting word thrown around. You've got like super fun sites. You ever heard of those? They're like cleanup, nuclear cleanup sites. Yeah, you yeah. Know? yeah. And I always, when I used to work for public radio, I always used to think that they were super fun sites, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like like a like a bouncy castle or something like that, but it turns out it's quite a depressing, heavy thing. The word super uh, used in politics is just interesting to me. But Super Tuesday to me sounds like a vestige of like old, you know, the old days of stumping politics up on a platform, you know? Mm-hmm. Is you is or is you ain't my constituency, that kind of thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's... So as as the guy who, with some small measure of regret, coined the term super producer here. Oh, shout out to our super producer, Casey Pegram. Still in the race, the race for our hearts, winning by a large margin. And as it turns out, not a toxic waste cleanup site or a, a supercharged political uh, day of the year. Yeah, the the phrase super, I, I for Super Tuesday, it always it always felt to me growing up like political pundits were trying to make it sound more fun right. than it is. Yeah. You know what I it mean? It must be, yeah. I, I, I don't know how it came about, but it is a strange title. I'm going to bring back just using super to say something's great. That's just super. It's like someone some from the Midwest would say. But we digress. Today we are posing a question that was posed in a film 
that actually had similar uh, things, resonances to today's episode. Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, starring Sidney Poitier. Remember that film, Ben? Mm-hmm, I do know. What's the question? Well, it was about a, uh, a dinner where a an African-American gentleman comes. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. The title was the question. Guess who's coming to dinner? That's right. Okay, I'm back in. Yes. Okay. So it was a film yeah. uh, where Sidney yeah, yeah. Poitier plays an African-American gentleman who comes to dinner, and it, uh, it, it, you know, all kinds of hilarity, awkwardness, and satire ensue. Guess who's coming to dinner has a lot in common, you're right, with today's story. Today's story involves uh, one of the most famous presidents in U.S. history, President Theodore Roosevelt. Now, Teddy, as he is known to his friends, uh, was was not a uh, status quo type of president. He was known for shaking things up and kind of making his own way. In 1901, he did something that wouldn't seem too controversial to us today. Certainly not. He had someone over for dinner, you know? And, of course, he's the president at this time. He's he's pretty busy in general. But because he's the president of the United States, even the smallest of social decisions carry enormous weight and symbolism for the public. It's not like uh, you or, or I casually inviting a new friend or new coworker to have some to have some lasagna or something this is always going to be interpreted as a statement it's true and deborah davis in her fantastic book guest of honor booker t washington theodore roosevelt and the white house dinner that shocked a nation uh referred to this situation as such um, african americans were invited to meet in offices they of course built the white house they worked for the various presidents but they were never, ever invited to sit down at the president's table. And when that happened, the outrage was just unbelievable. And a big reason for that, she goes on to say, is that uh, in society, uh, the idea of dining together really created uh, a sense, almost a code word for social equality. And folks just weren't ready to accept that fully yet, despite, obviously, uh, slavery having been illegal for some time. And African-Americans, for all intents and purposes, being able to occupy the same social strata as white people. But it was just not something that was um, embraced even still. Yes. And that's let's not bury the lead. Uh, The guest in question is Booker Taliaferro, Washington, American educator, uh, author, uh, a leader in his community at the time. There's a there's a double down meaning here. This is something that may have incensed the racist members of the public in the American South. Traditionally, at this time, it was understood that if you invited a male to have dinner with you, and this person was not related to you already, then you were tacitly inviting this man to woo your daughter. You're like, come on in, have a meal, have some lasagne. This is my daughter. Isn't she lovely? She's she's 19 and uh, she's getting up there. Ben, I love how in all of these uh, imaginary circumstances, everyone's always eating lasagna. It's lasagna. Yes, okay. <laughs> I don't know yeah. why. I don't a know why. Lasagna. Do you think they serve, if they serve lasagna in the White House, it's probably some fancy like lobster lasagna or something like that, I would think. 
I, you know what? I bet you have a lot of latitude when you're president because that's true. The menu has changed so much over the years. And now we can't forget that iconic picture of our current president with all the McDonald's, Big Macs and stuff stacked up in Baroque fashion. And he was very happy about that. I think he was doing the iconic double thumbs up. So, yes. So you can see, at least uh, according to Deborah Davis, you can see that as the primary reason or one of the primary reasons people were so offended, it caused them to clutch their pearls to imagine that a black man would be able to have that level of access to a family, especially the presidential family. Both men, both Washington and Roosevelt, were very much aware of this. And again, grasp your pearls here, gasp softly, there were going to be women present. Heavens. Uh, Let's get into, before we get into the outrage, which is going to come, as it's inevitable, uh, let's just talk a little bit about about why he would have wanted Booker T. Washington at a a gathering like this where you're going to talk policy. It was because he was a highly influential leader in the African-American community. He founded the Tuskegee Normal and Industrial Institute, born into slavery. Um, He saved up and put himself through school, was an educator, after the Civil War, and that's when he founded those institutes I mentioned earlier in 1881 in Alabama, uh, now known as Tuskegee University. So he was, uh, along with W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, was one of the foremost African-American leaders at the time, and Roosevelt would have wanted to hear what he had to say and would have wanted to collaborate with him because Roosevelt was, like you said, he thought outside the box and he wasn't going to let the man tell him what to do, even though he technically kind of like was, was the, the man. man. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I, I like that you point out how Washington was immensely influential. Theodore Roosevelt was immensely impulsive, legendarily so. And here's how it all went down. So he had this pre-existing appointment and this was a business appointment. They were supposed to compare notes, and Roosevelt was going to get some advice on uh, some cabinet picks. But then at the very last minute, it's true, Roosevelt said, you know, let's make it dinner. And he was going to send out this invitation to dinner. The story is that he paused for just a second and thought, is this a bad idea because of all the stuff we've got going on here in the U.S. and it's crazy messed up? I'm paraphrasing. Uh, And instantly he felt deeply ashamed that he even bothered hesitating. And so he said, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send this out before I can change my mind. And now Booker T. Washington gets the invitation and he has some thoughts. Well, yeah, I mean, he had to decide whether or not to accept the invitation. I, I would imagine that the uh, immediate impulse, especially for a guy like that who'd come so far, knew the symbolism of it. But I guess he had to decide if it would look at, like a betrayal to his community in some way or if it was worth, you know, making that big statement and, you know, kind of weathering the brouhaha that would follow um, in in the interest of kind of moving social discourse forward. And obviously he chose the, the latter, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. He said, this is going to be problematic for me, but I have no right to refuse. And he felt like he had to accept it as a representative of his community of course, they knew the S was going to hit the F. I'm going to say that. You can fill in whatever initialisms you like for that. The 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 the, the uh, shorts were going to hit the farm? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the scoop was going to hit the France. It's early in the morning today for us. 
I guess it, it's, it's almost noon, Ben. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? But the weather here it's as true. well. It's very dreary. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So they knew the S was going to hit the F. The Spain was going to hit the France. A White House reporter put the news of this dinner on the wire service. And this is, mind you, before they actually ever sit down to eat. There is a massive backlash. The stories that were printed about this are disgusting. They aged like milk, as uh, as we want to say. The men both received, uh, separately and as a group, death threats. There were uh, there was, of course, the cliche racial element to it, uh, and it included accusations that this would make Booker T. Washington quote uppity, 
uh, and that it would fuel ambition in his community. But then there was also criticism saying, you know, Teddy Roosevelt is a publicly elected official and he has no right to push his private agenda on the public. Yeah, I mean, the notion that he was using this to, quote unquote, uh, fuel Negro ambition, end quote. Uh, again, this is from from Deborah Davis from her book and again from the reporting of the time. And that is the one of the gentler uh, ways. You're really just using outdated language. We would never use that uh, term in that way today. But at the time, that was sort of the more polite way to characterize the situation. But some of the things that, like you said, Ben, that were printed were absolute uh, fear-mongering, race-mongering, hateful kind of stuff. And to uh, imply that Teddy Roosevelt was somehow trying to push some secret progressive agenda was just like the height of like paranoia. What, what, okay, here's my question. What is so insidious about not wanting people to be segregated? That's, that's the weird thing to me. Senators spoke out against this. James K. Vardaman um, said some things that I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna quote in full because they're, they're disturbing, but he said, Something like, and he's a Democrat from Mississippi, he says, the White House is now so saturated with the odor of blank that the rats had taken refuge in the stable. Other senators like Benjamin Tillman of South Carolina uh, threatened to kill a thousand people to, quote, put them back in their places. The Missouri Sedalia Sentinel published a poem on its front page entitled Blank in the White House. I mean, this was a national story, and it's it's a, a chilling look at how normal this sort of discourse was in the early 20th century. Yeah, there were like vulgar cartoons characterizing Mrs. Roosevelt, and she was a very, very popular first lady. And so all of a sudden to have her maligned so openly uh, just for being associated with this, because she was one of the guests of the dinner as well, one of the, you know, gasp women that was going to be there. Right, and— there wasn't 100 percent support in the African-American community for Booker T. Washington. There was a radical opponent of his, a fellow named William Monroe Trotter, who said agreeing to this dinner showed Booker T. Washington as a hypocrite who supports social segregation between blacks and whites while he himself dines at the White House. So everybody from all, all, all angles had some problems. They had some stuff to say about this and they had to go on. It was really just like a great excuse to push forth whatever your particular agenda was. Whichever side of the issue you might have found yourself on, you could use it as a way to say, Booker T, you're selling out. You know, you're uh, not practicing what you preach. You know, you're behaving as though you think you are better than your you know, fellow men. Um, and the other side of it would be, you know, Theodore Roosevelt is a uh, some sort of heretic and he is, you know, just totally, you know, going to shatter the moral fiber of, of the country by doing such a outrageous thing. And let's just remember, this is a dinner. This is it. How entrenched must that social moray have been in 1901 for people to just lose their minds over this story in this way? I mean, it absolutely created like a, a, a kind of hysteria. Yeah, I hope it was. I hope it was so widespread, at least this belief in the importance of dinner. I hope it was so widespread that it became a euphemism for hitting on someone's daughter. You know, it's like, well, I'm uh, going to go have dinner with your dad. 
See, that's weird, huh? When you put it like that, then that is kind of weird. So what happened exactly? Like, I mean, do we know how the dinner itself went? We we know uh, a little bit, but this is weird because people started trying to rewrite history as it was happening. Republican pundits went into damage control. They wanted to, to get in front of the story, as they say in the media today. One one idea was say, okay, look, when we report this, let's call it lunch because somehow lunch <laughs> is less of a problem. And now we're going to say, uh, we're also going to say, hey, Booker T. Washington did not go to the dining room and there weren't any women present. The guys were just sitting in the office. Their meeting went long. And so they ordered a tray of sandwiches. And for some reason that made people in the South feel less uh, bloodthirsty about it, which is weird. Because of the power of sandwiches. Or the power the great of equalizer Or lunch. Maybe they're like, well, it's just lunch. You I can have lunch definitely, with anybody. Definitely. Oh, that's a good point, Ben. That was sort of a uh, a diminished version, right? Like, so dinner is, is, is the height of social equality. Lunch is a little more, you can just kind of, you know, hop in and hop out. Like, it doesn't require quite as much pomp and circumstance, right? And so for, this goes on until the 1930s. Someone finally asked Miss Roosevelt. There's a great NPR story about this. Someone finally asked Mrs. Roosevelt, tell us straight, was it lunch or was it dinner? She checked her calendar, and she said it was most definitely dinner. And it was still even, even in Booker T. Washington's obituary in 1915, it was reported as lunch in his obituary. This was a really weirdly important thing. Wait a minute, though. Wait a minute. So which was it? We uh, Do we have confirmation? It we, really is. There's some mystery surrounding this to this day almost, huh? If we trust Mrs. Roosevelt's calendar, it was dinner. Where does the story about a tray of sandwiches come from? That comes from Republicans trying to spin the story. Oh. The Republican Party at the time, they See. wanted to preserve the political viability of the Roosevelt administration. I got it. So they softened it to sandwiches. But it probably wasn't true. No, I get it now. I get, it had me going because I almost, I got lost in the spin myself, Ben. <laughs> we all we all do get caught in the spin cycle every so often. So this is the weirdest thing because a lot of the story is lost to history. We We actually wouldn't know about this dinner if Deborah Davis had not heard about it just in passing at uh, John McCain's 2008 concession speech to the uh, newly elected at the time, President Barack Obama. I think it's wild, too, that a, a story that generated headlines or leads uh, such as this one from the Memphis Scimitar that declared this act by President Roosevelt to be the most damnable outrage which has ever been perpetrated by any citizen of the United States. So full stop. Benedict Arnold out out of out of the running. Totally. Out. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Forget about it. Outright. You know? The, the Civil War, everybody in there is officially not as bad as not they a were. big deal. But you, you ask uh, an influential black man to dinner. And all hell breaks loose. So the point being, Ben, with what you were alluding to, I think, is that this was largely kind of lost to history. I, I didn't know about it until we uh, until we started reading up on this here. Yeah, yeah. So in McCain's concession speech, which Deborah Davis hears, McCain says, a century ago, 
President Theodore Roosevelt's invitation of Booker T. Washington to dine at the White House was taken as an outrage in many quarters. America today is a world away from the cruel bigotry of that time. There is no better evidence of this than the election of an African-American to the presidency of the United States. And this hit Davis. She thought, wait, what? When did Booker T. Washington go to the White House. She's a cultural historian, so so that's going to uh, pique her interest. And then she found that this didn't even really show up high on Google. She had to she had to hit the books to figure out this story. And we want to thank Deborah Davis for the excellent work here because we forget sometimes how easy it is to lose these tremendous moments. You know, this is the thing that always bothers me. Whenever whenever I do a show or look into something at the White House or one of those press clubs or prayer breakfast when people get together. It's hard to find the menu, and I want to know what's on the menu. Like, what did they eat? It wasn't a tray of sandwiches. Right. I think it's important. I want to know that, too. Uh, for our purposes today, we will just go on continuing to believe that it was lasagne. Oh, thank you, man. That's very that's very kind of you. I, I, that's, <laughs> what I, that's what I choose to believe. I think it's because I finally uh, started watching Sopranos. So I th- did I tell you that? No, but uh, but more power to you. you. For like years, you've been telling me. Yeah. Carmela's lasagna is second to none. It's got little basil leaves in between the layers, you know? Oh, nice. It's got that regote. Uh-huh. The regote cheese, you know? <laughs> that's, that's, so, that's so creamy and delicious. Yeah. Her lasagna is, is a huge hit anywhere she brings it. She always brings it to potlucks at her church and everything, and people go crazy for it. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. 
In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I have an unrelated food question. Well, somewhat somewhat politically related, but it's a food question. So one of the uh, people who was running for the Democratic nomination, I think Amy Klobuchar from the Midwest, yep. uh, dropped this phrase, hot dish. And I didn't know what a hot dish was. I thought it was literally just like a hot dish, but it's a specific kind of thing. Have you ever heard of this? No. Is it like hot jazz? I can't tell the difference between a hot dish and a casserole. Like, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you, I thought you meant like as a euphemism for a person. Like, look at that hot dish over oh, there. Oh no, no, no! I would no, 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 no. Uh, but no, well, okay. So you mean like if you're designating a type of potluck, you're saying bring a hot dish. That means it can be anything. A casserole is 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 specifically a mishmash kind of thing with different ingredients with a cheesy crust. Well, here is apparently the difference. And this is something I had not heard before. So uh, fellow ridiculous historians, let us know the scoop on this. So casseroles and hot dishes are sort of the same thing, but the big difference is supposedly that casseroles use tuna and chicken, but hot dishes use red meat and more condensed soup varieties. But those still sound like casseroles to me, right? That doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand it. You can make a squash casserole. It doesn't have to have tuna or chicken. You can make a broccoli casserole. Green bean casserole. Ever heard of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, we're going to put this one to bed. I don't think this is worth our time. Hot dish, though. No, no, you're right. You're right. Let's let's keep going because the president did other stuff. Exactly. He did do other stuff because, as we know, uh, Teddy Roosevelt was a real pioneer in many respects, like in terms of his hunting prowess. We did that that episode where I think we uh, he and his sons went on a crazy hunting expedition once he had retired from the presidency uh, for uh, the Smithsonian, where he ended up, you know, taxidermying and sending back all these specimens. A lot of those are still there today. Day. So he was a very forward-thinking man. Obviously, it was just an interesting kind of excuse for him to be able to kill some big, wild, exotic game. But you got to give him props for, like, making it about science. Uh, but he did a lot of other things, too. He was a man of firsts. Um, he was a huge proponent of experiencing new things and pushing the envelope. Um, and so because of that, uh, we have a lot of presidential firsts that happen under Teddy Roosevelt's watch. He was the first president to ride in the submarine. He was the first to have a telephone in his residence and this is interesting he was the first presumably to have a dojo in the white house is this from the mental floss article ben this is the mental floss article uh is theodore roosevelt in the first presidential car ride that's crazy yeah a dojo i wonder if he was any good i wonder if he could like take a man down with some sweet karate moves 
Uh, and you can, you can read more about this at, at another Mental Floss article on a deep dive, Theodore Roosevelt, Mojo in the Dojo by Jenny Drapkin. Man, I love Mental Floss. I do too. Um, William McKinley, uh, his predecessor, was the first president to ride in a car, but uh, it was Roosevelt who kind of codified it, right, and, and made it part of his job to make the rounds uh, when he took a tour of Hartford, Connecticut in 1902. Yeah, the New York Times says that he was quite pleased with the, quote, handsome Victoria automobile because he thought it was a, a great way to shake a lot of hands in a short period of time. Yeah, more so than like a, what would they do, like a whistle stop tour? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And take the train, right? Uh, but in private, he he complained about them. He said, motor cars are a trial. I suppose ultimately we'll get them in their proper place in the scheme of nature. And when by law and custom, their use is regulated in proper fashion, their objectionable features will probably be eliminated. But just at present, I regard them as distinct additions to the discomfort of living. He kind of had it all right. Every <laughs> single point uh, he listed there was right. It was regulated. It was more integrated into the day-to-day of, of human existence. But I don't think those – what are those negative features that he's referring to? I kind of somehow doubt those went away. Is it the fact that they're big and bulky and can run you down and kill you? And smell bad. Uh, yeah, I I would not be surprised if the automobile industry asked him for a little bit of endorsement there. Mm, interesting. But he had one other big first in uh, November of 1906, right? He did indeed. He was the first president to leave the U.S. He uh, hopped aboard the USS Louisiana to take a tour of the Panama Canal, which was a big project. We take that for granted, presidents going on diplomatic uh, trips. You know, it's, it's, it's just like par for the course, but that's a big one. He was the first one to leave the country uh, to inspect that that canal that was that he, he had really uh, been a huge part of making happen. And so perhaps a, a, a good place to end our story today with Roosevelt and Washington's famous Lost to History dinner is to objectively look at the Roosevelt administration and the enormous race problem in the United States. When he was reelected, he said that his plan was to improve race relations in 1905. And historians, like, you can look at his work and say that, yes, he firmly believed that all men are created equal. But as History.com notes, his administration took kind of a, a passive approach to improving civil rights. And his successors did much the same thing. It really wasn't until Lyndon Johnson passed the Civil Rights Act in 1964 that the effort to correct racial discrimination was encoded into law. So it's been a long road, you know, but dinner does a lot. It does. And it continues to be a really important tool for networking and for meeting with business clients and things because it does kind of the idea of breaking bread together. It really is this great equalizer where if you're having dinner with uh, the CEO of your company, say, when you guys are sitting across from each other at the same table, eye to eye, yeah, there is something some effect to that that's hard to measure that really does make you feel like you're sort of on the same level. And I think that's a powerful thing. And kudos to Teddy Roosevelt for whether completely intentionally or kind of brashly making this grand gesture. Uh, it obviously made a big splash and was very important. 
As always, thank you so much for tuning in. We want to hear from you. What do you think are some of the most influential dinners in history? And we mean global history, not just... uh, not just U.S. history, and it can be something like the Booker T. Washington Teddy Roosevelt dinner, or it could be something you know a little more Red Wedding esque if you wanna if you wanna be dark about it. Right. But uh, did we mention the fact that that they found out that there was an assassin taken out, uh, an assassin hired to kill uh, Booker T. Washington because of this? Well, they're death threats for sure. Yeah. Yeah, but there was somewhere in the reporting that said they they. You know, uh, there was a botched attempt at an assassination or there was some evidence that there had been an assassin sent to Tuskegee to take him out. Yeah, I bet there were already also so many death threats that guy was getting. That's what I'm saying. Can you imagine? They're like, how dare you start a school? Right. <laughs> so, so let us know about your favorite historical dinners. Bonus points if you can give us the menu, too. It's, it's killing me, folks. It's killing me to read about these amazing moments and not know what they were eating. Uh, you know, maybe that's just me. Maybe I should not criticize history for not keeping better track of its menus. No, personally, Ben, I think it's a, it's an absolute crime against humanity that we cannot know what these political luminaries were eating every minute of the day. Now we do, because it's all preserved in the tweet record. And know? on their Instagrams. And on their Instagrams with tasteful food pics. Love that. But that's a discussion for another day. Uh, For now, I think we can bid this topic and you, fair listeners, adieu. A huge thanks to super producer Casey Pegram, as always. Uh, Thanks to Alex Williams, who composed this here song uh, that you hear before your very ears. Uh, Thanks to Christopher Hasiotis, always here in spirit. Of course, Gabe Luz here. Where would we be without you, our uh, wonderful um, and talented research associate? Thanks to Eve's Jeff Coat on our peer podcast, This Day in History class. Thanks also, of course, to Booker T. Washington and to Theodore Teddy Roosevelt. Where can I tell you about my favorite dinner in history, you might be asking yourself? Well, do we have a deal for you? You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. Our Facebook page is top notch. It's called Ridiculous Historians. We'd love for you to join us and our fellow listeners there. All you have to do is name Casey, Noel, me, or or all three of us, or some combination thereof, or honestly, just make us laugh. Like uh, I heard a terrible pun recently, uh, Noel. If you'd like to, hear, if you'd like, please. To, if you're into this, okay. Uh, this comes from another show. Stuff they don't want you to know. Someone said, "Did you hear about this plan to deliver magazines by drone? It's raising a lot of issues." raising because I don't understand because magazines come out in issues issues and the drone is flying the magazine it's raising the I, I got it that's good I, I'm just slow I, like you said it's early uh, well it's 12 20 <laughs> it's 12 30 uh, I think we're both a little <laughs> under the weather and sure. uh, and it is a pretty dreary uh, Pacific Northwesty type day outside uh, so stay warm stay dry folks and we'll see you next time For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.